understanding his being and his existence and his activity in history. This is a, this is a wonderful, beautiful, glorious passage, but it will, it will be quite in-depth at some portions here. We've, in the course of our, our study in the book of Exodus so far, we have, congratulations everybody, tackled a chapter a week. That's quite a feat if you've been here any uh, length of time. You know that that's, uh, that's, that's teamwork on everybody's part, that we've been able to do a, an entire chapter a week. Told you you'd be able to do it, mate. Uh, this week we're going to do it again in, in Exodus chapter 3. But, but so far, and if you're just joining us today for the first time, what you've missed is, is those introductory, but they're not just intro, they're, they're storytelling chapters of Exodus in chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we met the men who came down 400 years ago, who came down into Egypt from the land of Canaan, the, the, the Semite region, the, uh, the, the, the sons of Abraham came down, the, we met the patriarchs, and we met the, the Israelite nation and families that came from them. And then we met, we met Egypt and their tyranny and the warriors and, and Pharaoh, who was that, that serpent head of, of that nation. And, and then we met Moses last week and his amazing family and the ladies in his family that kept him alive. So we've met all of these characters and right now we've got Israel over in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. And Moses is far departed over in the Midianite wilderness as a shepherd with his father-in-law and a new family starting an entirely new life, but there's one person who we've actually failed to be properly introduced to yet. The person that this entire book, no, the entire Bible is actually about. This is the God, Yahweh. We're we're today going to experience the, the very first time in all of human history that God actually revealed his name to his people in this way. This is, this is the God who covenanted with the, with the patriarchs. This is the God who created the Israelite nation, who's going to judge and oppose Pharaoh and all of Egypt, the one who, is going to, who has been present in raising up Moses. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, we meet him personally and by way of formal introduction. So look at Exodus chapter 3 as we read verse 1. Hear now the words of the thrice holy, only true, triune, living God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, 
The cry of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go out to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It is believed, a little side note, that the very mountain on which God has appeared to him is what will be Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Say that five times fast. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now... Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But, God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give to you, uh, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. May God bless his own pure and holy word in our midst this morning. We're going to look at three different aspects of this person of God who has revealed himself in history as Yahweh. First of all, we will consider the aseity of God. We'll explain it, don't worry. Second of all, we're going to study the holiness of God. And thirdly, we will see how this passage shows to us the covenant faithfulness of God who reveals himself as Yahweh. In this section, we have seen God introduce himself as the God who is, full stop existential, metaphysical, full stop. He is not the God who is something. He is not defined by other delimitations, delineations, and descriptions. He is described and defined by himself. He is the God who just is, who is and always has been and always will be, who introduces himself here as I am who I am, or it could be 
He is who he will be, or I am who I will be. The Hebrew can be a little bit, uh, it can go either way. But, but when you take that phrase, he is, it comes through in the, in the Hebrew and then into the, Greek, uh, the, 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 the English as something likened to Yahweh. That's why we, we spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H, or sometimes you'll just see it as Y-W-H-W. W, uh, other way around, Y-H-W-H, or in the Eng- most of the, the English translations, like the ESV, will just have capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. In the past, before this, this, this self-description and revelation to Moses, God has been known as, as Adonai, meaning the Lord, or Elohim, meaning, meaning God. They, they knew that he was these things. And yes, the book of Genesis uses the word Yahweh to describe God, but in their actual relationship to God, they did not know him by his personal, divine, eternal name, which is I am. He is. The God who simply is. <clears throat> Here in verse 13 and 14, let's, let's look there again. Moses said to God, if I come to the people and say, our ancestral God has sent me, what should I say? Look <clears> at <throat> verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. All in capitals in the ESV. Appropriately so. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am am sent me to you. In this name, as we start getting theological here, in this name, God is revealing to us his self-sufficiency, or what we might call his self-existence. He is revealing to us that he is absolute, full stop. Not, Not absolutely this or that, but absolute full stop. He is an absolute, necessary, self-existent being, which means that for the infinitude of his majesty and his existence, he relies on nothing else but his own infinitude of majesty and existence. He isn't leaning on anything or anybody else for him to be who and what he is. Or in other words, he has being... In and of him, do you know why, why I told you? I hope you're energetic and switched on and thinking this morning in this nice, cool, well aircon ventilated room. Feels like we've got a burning bush under each seat, doesn't it? And you're not even under the spotlights. <clears throat> God is saying here that he, he, he has been, have you ever thought of, and most of us haven't because we haven't all done a, a metaphysical study at, 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 at college or seminary level, but, but being is something kind of in and of itself. Being is something that everything that exists has, but you can't see it or touch it. The, the thing that, that is being is another word we might use, existence. Do you realize that not only do you have uh, characteristics and faculties and certain things you might describe yourself, tall, short, round, thin, yellow hair, black hair, uh, uh, annoyed, annoying, uh, married, single, uh, uh, white skin, darker skin, all these different things you might describe yourself as. But do you realize that one of the most important things about you, without which you don't exist, is existence? Okay, I, I know we're getting a little bit simple here, but, but the simpler we get, the more complex it gets. And, and so you have this thing called existence, but the question becomes, where did you get, where do you, where do you uh, borrow your existence from? It has to be drawn from something, otherwise you would be an eternal being. 
Because you would be the ground, the self-sufficient ground of your own being in and of yourself. Now, since that's not true, and you came into being at some point, you therefore are necessarily and logically relying on something else for this thing called existence. Something else holds you in being so that you're not just an imagination. You're not just a concept. You really and truly exist. Now, this, this thing that we call being, we could otherwise just call Yahweh. He is the, the pool, the reservoir, the ground, the foundation, the very definition of existence itself. He doesn't exist because something gave him existence. He was not created. He does not borrow from a greater or more eternal being or more foundational concept. His being, he is the ground of his own being. Therefore, he says, I am who I am. Or, I am. He just metaphysically, eternally, is. He doesn't exist in the world. He is the source of everything else existing in reality. All other things depend on something else. Everything, you, me, everything, depends on something to live, to, to, to come into creation and then to continue on living. We depend on so many different factors, the weather, the, the climate, the food, the people, the, uh, all sorts of stuff around us. We do, but God, he depends on no one and nothing, not metaphysically, not to begin, not to survive. This is what we call the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. Every single thing in all of creation, from a nebula down to a cell to individuals or to, to concepts like gravity or to mathematics, everything, abstract or, or physical, everything depends on other things to be true. But God, in the, as the one and sole creator, is in a category of, of non-contingent, which we'll look at in just a moment. In theology, <clears throat> and this is where I'll, I'll come back to my usual quip to say that Aussies are the eminent theologians. None, none better than Karl Barron, doctor, doctor and Pope Karl Barron. Australian comedian who, who once said, he was talking about the way that Aussies communicate. This will become relevant in just a moment. Uh, 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 he, he, he was joking about how, how Aussies communicate and how Aussies use language. And he says, Aussies just, they don't say how things are, they, they say how things aren't. You walk up to your mate and go, hey, how you going? Not bad. Yeah. Sarah, how much was that? Oh, it wasn't cheap, you know. How, how was church? Yeah, not, not short. You know, we, we just say what things aren't because... That's, we're great theologians because, because in theology proper, which is like the theology of God's person and existence, you run out of ways to be able to describe God. And so they can't say what God is because he doesn't have any definitions that we can draw around. We, we can just start saying things that he's not. This is Karl Barron theology. It's called negative theology. When, when we just start saying things that God is not, he's, he's immortal. I mean, he's, he just doesn't have the delineations that would mean that life ends. Oh, so he's been living forever? No, no, that's not the same as immortal. He's, he's, he just doesn't age. He's timeless. He's, he's outside of time. Or we might say that he is infinite, infinite. He's just, he doesn't have finitude. There's no borders to draw around. He's infinite. That's negative theology. We might say he's independent. There, there is nothing and no one else that he depends upon. He is immutable. He doesn't go through mutations like we do or change. He is immutable, unchanging and eternal. Or this word that we said before, he is non 
contingent. Non-contingent. Everything else in all of creation is contingent beings. We exist because something happened to us, because something created us. We exist, we, we dangle off of the supreme being for our existence, but God hangs in emptiness. He is himself non-contingent. He needs nothing else to affect him, change him, give to him, provide anything for him. He derives nothing, he derives from nothing and no one. He relies on nothing and no one. He depends on nothing and no one. He is a necessary being. It is impossible that this eternal God does not exist. If anything has existence, it demands that there is an eternal source of existence. If anything exists, then God exists necessarily. This God is the one who, who, who introduces himself as I am, or I am what I am, who I am. I will be what I will be, whatever it is, however we want to we translate that. The Latin word the theologians give to this to describe this, this selfness of God is aseity. A mean, is, is in the Latin meaning, meaning from. And, and say, uh, S-E is sort of that Latin phrase meaning, meaning uh, 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 self, right? That's where we get the word self. He is, he is from himself. He comes out of himself to be himself, and he sources his own self. He is just an infinite, eternal, self-reliant being. This is, this is the concept that stretches and then snaps, smashes, burns our brain and our mental faculties called the aseity of God. And it's shown to us in his name, but secondly, we can see that it's, it's even pictured for us in the burning of the bush. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. As Moses is walking by, he, he's starting to learn theology before he even hears the words. The angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning but not consumed. And then he said, I will turn to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So here are two natural questions as Moses is just walking his sheep a, a week's travel from home. He's, he, he's gone uh, up to 150 or more miles from the Midianite area. He's walking his father's, uh, father-in-law's sheep. He's a long way from home in the Sinai wilderness. And there he sees this, this burning bush, if we can call it that. And the, the first two questions that erupt in his mind is, who started this fire? I don't see a camp. I don't see other, other, other hunters or, or farmers. Who started this fire? And secondly, what's sustaining it? How is it burning, but the bush not burning? We all know that as hot and, and as glorious and magical and amazing as fire is, it requires things to burn or the fire goes out. And so here he, he, he's thinking, who started that and who's sustaining that? And these two questions are already getting at the very heart of who God will reveal himself as. Because this flame was started by nobody. This flame didn't rely on somebody else to spark it. It was not waiting for conditions to become right in order for it to burn. It was a self-originating fire that God himself simply spoke into existence to be his revelation to Moses. But then secondly, nothing 
and nobody was sustaining the flame except for the flame itself. The, the flame was, was in the bush, and, and so Moses says there's a bush burning, but then he says, I've got to go up and look at it as to why it's not burning. So, so, so the flame is burning in and of itself. It is if, it is if the, the flame is in the bush, but not of the bush. It's not relying on the bush for its fuel. It has simply chosen the bush to be its, its, its space of burning, but it's not relying on the bush itself. This is a, a picture of God's own aseity. That God is here appearing to him in the bush as one who does not rely on the things to, uh, which it has made, or it does not rely on the beings to whom it reveals itself. This God is a self-reliant God, a self-sufficient fire. But we have to ask, because I know you're thinking, what is this flame? It says to us here that it was the angel of Yahweh. But the Hebrew can otherwise come out, and so commentators argue, that it would probably be more natural to, 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 to translate it as the angel, comma, Yahweh. Or the messenger, which is the other word for angel, the messenger, Yahweh. That, that this is not actually Michael or, or any of the other angels up there that have come down and embodied. This is actually God himself being his own angelos, his own messenger in the English. It's God. And we know this because in just a short moment, he's going to introduce himself as God. Verse 4 tells us that it's God who speaks to him out of the bush. God himself is the angel of the Lord. Or, without time to argue for this today, but theologians will say that this is the second person of the Trinity. When we see physical manifestations of God to man in what we call the Shekinah glory, the light, the, the flame of God, the glory of God made manifest to man is always God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So Moses is looking here at what we call a fire theophany. A theophany taken from the... Oh, we're just doing lots of word studies today, aren't we? In theophany, we have the two words, uh, uh, ophany, or, or meaning a, a picture or an appearance, a, a sight, and theos, meaning that word for God. So in a theophany, we have God appearing to people, and they're all over the Old Testament. Theophany, however, is always, it's, it's how God reveals himself before the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus into human flesh was not a theophany. It was God taking on a new nature. It was not appearing, it was not just showing, it was not just a, not just a picture or a vision, he was really... In. So, so, so before that happened, we called it theophany, and one of the common ways that God theophanizes himself, or appears to his people, is through fire. We saw it happen with Abraham, as God made covenant with Abraham, through a pot of burning coals and flame. We will see it now, we see it later on at Sinai, when, when Yahweh descends onto the mountain in flaming fire... We will see it later on when the Israelites are running and, and God protects them and leads them with a pillar of fire from heaven. And we're also going to see it in the, in the life of Elijah. You know, when, when God pours down, heaven from, uh, pours down fire from heaven by the working of Elijah to consume the sacrifice. Fire is a frequent picture that God uses to reveal himself. And so this is God himself, his Shekinah glory, revealing himself to Moses as the self-existent, self-reliant flame, picturing for us the self-reliant, self-existent God who is Yahweh. I am who I am. But this starts becoming extremely good news when this God is revealing himself as Savior. 
It's very good news for the people that God is about to seek to save, for them to know that he is the self-existent, independent God. I know that, that I could probably, if I was a betting man, count on one hand how many churches this morning filled their pews and then opened up with a, with a theology proper of God's aseity. I know it's not popular. I just know we're in the, we're in the, the, the small minority this morning as we come in and, and stretch our minds, the, the Athanasian Creed, and, and then understanding God's, God's aseity as much as we can understand it. But friends, while everybody wants to rush in and hear how Jesus has a great plan for your life, Come down and we'll, and we'll lay hands on you or we'll, we'll give you promises. Unfounded, but I'll pluck something out of Scripture and tell you that God's going to solve your problems. Or, or maybe in some of the churches that we praise God for, they at least get to the point that Jesus died for your sins. But to see this as irrelevant, as, as Old Testament, as for the seminarians and the academicians, friends, that would be unfaithful. Because if we do not lay the grounds, the foundations for understanding the God who is, it becomes immediately unamazing that he would become our savior. Becomes immediately expected that he would step in and do something for me, that he would answer my prayer, that he would, he would return my offering with blessing. We start demanding, expecting, blaspheming God when we forget that he is the God who is who he is, the eternal God of aseity. What good news it is for a savior to be able to speak to us and tell us that he relies on us for nothing. You're not a contributor to your salvation. You are a benefactor. You're not a participation in the solution. You're the problem. God is coming as the self-reliant, independent, unneedy savior to say, I can do all that needs to be done. God saves us by himself, through himself, for himself, without any reliance on us whatsoever. That is good news. Joseph, do you remember, remember Exodus chapter 1? When Joseph came down, he was prime minister, he was a Hebrew in the Egyptian court, but time went on, and a pharaoh arose who did not know this, this Joseph. And because the pharaoh did not identify as somebody who recognized Joseph, the Hebrews were enslaved, oppressed, and victimized. We're going to see the exact same language come up in, I believe, chapter 5. Pharaoh will say, this Yahweh? I don't know this Yahweh. Do you know how much difference that makes to God's plans? Nothing. God will say, I'm not Joseph. I'm not some guy from history that's asking if, if you remember the pact we made together. I am who I am. Give me my children or I'll kill yours. That's the God we serve. That's the God who's revealing himself to Moses. The unrelying, the independent God is the one who is stepping onto the scene to redeem Israel. But we start seeing other elements here, don't we? Look at, look at verse 2. As we return to the picture of the fire, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. God intentionally chose this, this picture, this, 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 this substance in order to reveal himself because it is in the very nature of a fire to repel or to consume. When, when a fire pops, when, you, when your husband's cooking the rice and somehow flame appears, you don't even have a gas stove, there's just fire now. You run away or you are consumed in that thing. 
And so it is with the, the, the fire becomes this all-appropriate picture of God because he is the, he is the consuming, the, the holy God that demands distinction or consumes. So that in every element of God's being, in his being, he is holy in the sense that he has a saity and none of us do. In the sense of his justice, he is infinite and righteous and perfect and none of us are. By way of his morality, he is pure and perfect, and none of us are. God is the holy God, and we are not like him in that sense. And so, later on in the, in the books, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is warning the Israelites about avoiding idolatry, and, and the grounds of his, of his exhortation is, is this picture. It is the picture of Sinai when God came in fire. He says to them, don't commit idolatry. Don't turn your back on God. Don't try and sin in his presence because our God is a consuming fire. He's a furnace without a door. He's, he's a bushfire without any fencing. This is God that we serve, a consuming, holy God. And therefore, in verse 5, Moses is told to take his sandals off. In verse 5, God says to him, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The, the holy distinction between God and man in our being, but also by way of our sin, because we are not just in our essential being distinct from God, he's eternal, we're, we're finite beings, but also by way of morality in our, and our sin, it further separates us from God. And so when this holy God seeks to invade this sinful universe, he sanctifies for himself or, or separates from common use a certain space. Now this starts becoming so important in the rest of the book of Exodus. We're, we're going to see it pictured through the, through the tabernacle, through walls and curtains separating, through, through space and, and, and ritual cleansing in order to, 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 to access. We're going to see it by way of clothing. Certain people have to wear certain clothings in order to come to the presence of God. God, throughout the whole book of Exodus, and this is most of the second half, we're going to see God's, God's importance of sanctifying for himself a space to be distinct from sinful man. So he creates holy ground which makes sense of the two commands that he gives to Moses here. He sanctifies space and he demands holy clothing, in a sense. He says, take those sandals off and do not come near. You must remain distinct or you will be consumed. God's holiness is shining through here. And Moses sensed it. Look at verse 6. When he recognized what it was that was burning, when he recognized who it was that he was hearing, verse 6 says at the end, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This, this is the right response when a sinner comes into the presence of God. That we would first recognize the distinction, recognize the unworthiness, like Isaiah would do, as he was just traumatized by the holiness of God that he saw on the throne. He threw himself down, and he said, a curse unto himself, woe is me. Well, I'm about to be judged and destroyed. I am unworthy of being here. I'm unclean. My people are unclean. Here's Moses saying, whatever is about to happen, it doesn't get better if I keep looking at it. He averts his gaze. He looks away and braces. 
But next we see the covenant faithfulness of God. God was not here simply to squish out his dependent finite creation. He was not here to simply mete out his judgment as a holy God. He was a God who has revealed himself today in this way, expressed his divine name, Yahweh, in order to start activating the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Look at verse 6. God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Or look at verse 15. God says to, himself, uh, God says to Moses of himself, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In verse 16 also, at the end, he calls himself the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me. This is the, this is the line he's supposed to be using to the Israelites. Over and over again, God is, God is saying, I, I have this everlasting name, Yahweh. But what, what, what he condescends in order to, to sort of buckle, I guess if we can think of it in a crude way, God condescends and says, on the docket, on the paperwork, as long as I'm known, my last name will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, now, if we just have in our minds these local deities who sort of who possess different spots on the map and have, have certain amounts of powers against other, other local deities like pagans will think, then, well, that makes sense. He's got to identify the lot of land or the people which give him his power. You know, who are the people that he gets his, his, his sustenance from through their sacrifices? That's, that would make sense for a tiny, pathetic, non-Aseitas kind of God. But it is so humbling and gracious that this infinite, glorious, eternal, immortal, independent God would say, I'm happy to be known forever by the names of three absolute scumbags from the book of Genesis. Not being sacrilegious. You read their stories, you're going to stop naming your kids after them. That's what you're going to (laughs) do. Scumbags. And here's Yahweh saying, I'll be known by their name. I'm their God. I love that Hebrews picks us up. It comes up later on in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that, that God says that he is not ashamed to be their God. Why? Because they earned it? Because something Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had done to put God in their, in their, in their debt? Absolutely not. This is God condescending in covenant, promise-keeping faithfulness to say, I'm Yahweh, know me as that. But know me in this duality of principles. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The eternal who has stepped into time. The untouchable who has become tangible. The unapproachable who has approached us. The one we can't demand anything of who comes and gives us demands that we can ask of him because of covenant. So know me as this covenant-keeping God. And we see this language of condescension. Look again in verse 8 where God says the first four words in this sentence, if you've got an ESV. And I have come down to deliver them. God 
all throughout Scripture is pictured to us, especially in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But all throughout, throughout the, the, the covenant history of the Bibles, we see God as the one who condescends. This, this infinite gap and chasm that we have spoken of between us and God, this, this logical, metaphysical distinction between creator and creature, we, we can't access him, we can't tap into his knowledge, we can't pull him down. He, he spans it from the very moment he finishes his creation, or even while he is creating, he is imminently imposing his presence upon it. He graciously condescends in order to speak and make covenant, and that was gracious even before sin. When God stepped into the garden and made covenant with Abraham, even that was a gracious covenant. No, he wasn't sinful yet, and, and God didn't deserve to, to punish Abraham yet, and yet, by spanning this infinite chasm to even reveal himself to Adam, that was an infinite step of condescension. And now again, we see the same language that he has come down. I've stepped off the throne. I've knelt down to my children. I've, I've stooped to the position where my people are slaves and I am going to fulfill my promises. In case there is any doubt, he repeats the promises that he made to the patriarchs multiple times. So, so in verse 12, we see him say, this will be the sign for you. This is the sign that I am with you, that I have sent you, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this mountain. This is not just a God sort of, sort of cracking open the prison doors, kicking the Israelites out, and then taking his holiday. This is a God who is, from the very uh, conception of his covenants, was always, the end goal was always to have for himself a people that will be sanctified, set apart, holy, rescued, forgiven, and worshipping him. It doesn't quite work out. As you might hope in the Old Testament, that was part of the plan. But it comes to fruition and fulfillment in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. But, but see this, that covenant-worshipping relationship was always God's aim through this act of redeeming them. You will come and worship me on this mountain. You shall serve me on this mountain. Or in verse 17, he repeats what he's repeated multiple times. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. That was the promise that he made to Jacob and to Abraham. To the land of, and this is the, the phrase that he, he repeats multiple times throughout this book and even just this passage to drive home the fact, I'm keeping my specific promises. I'm going to take you to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Or look at verse 19 to 22. Not only is he going to rescue them, because he promised he would, not only is he going to take them to a glorious land that they can worship him in, because he promised he would, he's going to make it in such a manner, he's going to conquer the superpower of the day with such humiliating force that the way that the Jews are going to plunder the Egyptians on their way out is that all the ladies are just going to knock on their neighbor's door. I would like all of your gold, please. They'll give you buckets of it. You'll put it on your kids to carry. That's the biblical basis for chores and carrying heavy things on, on, on beach trips. They're going to ask more. They're going to ask their servants. They're going to ask people who, who, who are around them. All of your things, please. Anything that's expected, they will give it to them. And they'll just walk out. 
And so they will do what, what is usually the masculine, the warrior, the bloody act of plundering your enemies. They're not bashing down doors. They're not swinging swords. Let's read how he says it's going to happen. Verse 19. Uh, uh, sorry, verse 20. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Right? It's God who will be fighting. It's the, it's the Jews who will simply be watching. And then he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you won't go empty-handed. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the God. This is the one true God who intervenes to save Israel. He, he appeared to Moses. He revealed his divine name. He assured him of his own independence and power and aseity. And now he will be entering into the Israelite story in order to redeem them as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As we see, see this passage point forward to and become fulfilled for us in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, you need to realize that Jesus, as we just heard in the Athanasian Creed, Jesus is not a lesser form of or sub-position of God. He is not a division of, a slice of, or a fraction of God come into humanity. He is the God who appeared himself to Moses in the bush. It's still God the Son. It is Jesus who in, in and of his divine being and essence is the God of aseity. He is the God who is self-dependent and independent, self-existent and self-reliant, who condescended to save us and how far he condescended. This, this God who, who would ordinarily reveal himself, God the Son would normally reveal himself from heaven as fire, burning, consuming striking the earth in this glorious manifestation, but instead, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he condescended so far, not, not merely to, to put on a light show for us, but to enter into the life of a cell in the uterus, live as a, live as a tiny little dependent, reliant, non-self-existent baby who relied on everything and everybody around him to keep him alive. This is the God who condescended to require of his mother milk or he'd die. This is how low God came in order to save us. But, but so much more. He didn't come down as, as a baby to be born a king like Moses or like Joseph. He came down and was despised from his childhood onwards, especially in his adult public, spiritual, empowered ministry. He was despised. The Bible tells us that he condescended to live like a slave. Because for us, he was, he was not enslaved by the Romans, but he was under their subjugation. He was not required to build pyramids, but, but he was enslaved under the law of God, required to obey every step, every jot, and every tittle of it so that we might have salvation. Jesus came so low, but even lower than the way he lived is the way that he died. The death of a shameful, humiliated criminal on the cross. This is Yahweh in flesh, on the cross, dying for our sins. How, how, how expansive and eternal and infinite the love of God for us. No one knows a greater love 
than Jesus. No one can imagine a love that will go lower and further and more sacrificial than Jesus for sinners. If you're a sinner, this is good news for you today because he's the, he's the savior that has nothing to ask of you. He's the savior who is entirely self-reliant and not asking or begging or requiring you to provide anything. The only thing you're bringing to the table, got a reference, Jonathan Edwards here, uh, but the only thing you're bringing to the table is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. And God's not drawn back. He's not amazed. He's not surprised by that. He's condescending. He is inviting. He is telling you that you have nothing to bring. He has everything. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he's finished the work. Long ago, before you were thought of or born, friends, before anybody could think of your name or even your great-great-great-grandparents, your sins were atoned for in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who accomplishes it all and gives to you a free gift of faith. Atonement is already done. Forgiveness is already achieved. The doors are open to eternal life and the kingdom of God. The only thing that he asks of you, the only thing that he commands of you, is to stop your striving and your working and rest in those promises. That's what we call faith. Simply believing and resting, sitting down into the promises of God for you to forgive you because of Jesus. And lastly, as we're reflecting on all of these things, Jesus is the Holy One that brings us near to God. Jesus is not just holy, but able to be contaminated. He's not just holy, so don't come near. Jesus doesn't come into the world, see sinners, and say, do not come any further, take your shoes off, stay far away, wash yourself before you come near. Rather, Jesus is, is so much more holy, he is infinitely holy, so that he comes in and he is undefilable. And instead of saying, stay away, get changed, he says, come near, I'll change you. Come near and touch me, come near and hear me, come near and he even uses the language of eat me. Devour my words, receive my person, because then he brings us into the holy presence of God. He doesn't send us out. He, he purifies us and cleanses us and brings us to Yahweh. He does not send us away. Friends, have, have you had a, a picture of Jesus in your mind that gets sickened, disgusted, and separates you from God because of your sin? Or do you understand biblically that he is the one that has come to you, demands that you do not run away, but you come near because he can bring you that forgiveness, that holiness, that cleansing that you so desperately need because he loves you and he died for you. This is the God that we serve. Let's pray. God, we are humbled under the weight of the consideration just for, just for a short portion of time. We try to, to, to think about you in honorable, true, biblical ways, and we are, we are mentally exhausted. Our fuel runs out. Our, our resources are, are insufficient. We don't know how to describe you entirely. Lord, let us be, be humbled by the weight, the weight that that presses upon our soul. Would we, God, honor the very first petition that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be considered as holy. Yahweh, our Father, hallowed be your name in our midst this morning. Among those who do not know you and have thought small thoughts about you and have sought to, sought to escape from you or get away with their sin or, or just not think highly enough thoughts of you, 
Father God, would you impose onto them that they cannot run? There is no square inch of existence that does not have its existence in you. Father God, would you, would you like Moses, compel them to come near? Would you, would you turn them aside from their ordinary life and make them draw near to ask questions and to understand what kind of God is this? God, would you give to them faith? Would you give to them faith that relies on the finished work of Jesus who bled for them, who died for their punishment, who rose for their eternal life because they realize that they cannot earn, they cannot work, they cannot do anything to receive that salvation themselves. God, as we consider who you are and what you are, would you please save souls in our midst today through the finished work of Jesus Christ? God, for all of those who know you, who have received your spirit and are seeking to live with you and by your strength, would you give to us a, a heightened understanding of your glory and of your condescending grace to us and of your purpose to create for yourself a holy people that worship you? Would you make us that people, Lord God, in this world that we are effective for you and devoted to you, away from distractions and affections and sins that will distract? Lord God, give us one mind to worship you, our triune, holy, self-existent Yahweh. It's the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.